Well, good morning. So you might have to bear with me today. If you hear my voice fading at some moment, it could be for one of two reasons. Uh, the first is that I did battle the flu this week, came out victorious. Um, and the other is because Texas did lose to Oklahoma last night and, or yesterday, and it could just be that I'm becoming overwhelmed at that moment. Um, but we like to not live in the past, so it's history. Um, go ahead and take a minute. We're going to do a little fellowship sharing time and share with somebody near to you. Just take a couple seconds and let them know what was your very first job. Go ahead. Tell, tell your person sitting next to you, what was the very first job that you ever had? And then another thing you can share with them, if you've shared what your first job was, is share with them what your worst job was. And if your person next to you is your boss, maybe not share your current employment with them, but go ahead and share what is the worst job that you've ever had. So for me, my very first job was like lawn care, like a bunch of high school boys. It was taking care of somebody's yard. We mowed. And the worst job experience that I ever had is I was in college in Pittsburgh, Kansas. There's this place up there called Pittsco, and they are educational toys. And so me being a kid that was going to be a phys ed major, a child at heart, I thought, sweet, that job's going to consist of playing with toys all day for my job. And so I, I went and I applied and I got the job and they take me to this room and it's like from that speaker to the podium, from the front of the stage to about where I am and it is pitch black. And there's a computer monitor in there. And they said, your job is to sit here. This is an interactive educational computer game and your job is to sit at this computer in every clickable icon, you have to click it. And then you click back. And then you click the next one, and then you click back. And for eight hours a day, that is what you are going to be doing. And I made it two hours before I went and found the manager, and I was like, y'all can find somebody else. I'll give you till the end of the week, but I'm not doing this. I cannot sit in this pitch black room. It should have had padded walls because it's like that's, that's about what it felt like. I was going to go crazy, and they were just like, um, go ahead. We don't need you. you. You can just leave. And that was like my worst job experience. But whenever you uh, apply for a job, whenever you get accepted for a job, there's usually something that happens. There's an agreement that is made that you, you sit down with your new employer or employee and you say, these are the responsibilities that are going to fall upon you. We expect you to arrive on time. We expect you to put in a solid work uh, effort. We expect you to fulfill these requirements, whatever it is. And then on the employer side, it's like you are expected to pay me for my services. You're expected to whatever it is. You come up with this agreement. And at some point along the line, that agreement might start to get broken. Maybe as the employee, you start stealing supplies, never. You might uh, start, you know, skipping a lot more, arriving late. You, you break the appointment, and there are consequences in that job description of if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. Maybe we'll dock your pay. Maybe we'll force you to be suspended for a little bit. Or maybe 
we will fire you. You will just be terminated. And if it's the employer that breaks the agreement, it's like, okay, well, maybe I'll just quit. Maybe I'm not going to give you my efforts. I'm going to take my talents elsewhere. And we kind of see that's, that's a very uh, shallow view of the relationship that God has with the Israelites. When he called his people out of Egypt, he said, you are going to be my people. And he made a covenant with them, which is far deeper than any contract that an employee employer is going to make. He said, I will be your God. I will guide you. I will lead you. I will love you. I will provide for you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And he, he makes this covenant with them. And he says to them in Leviticus, he says, if you serve me, if you obey these lines, these laws that I'm giving you, I'll be faithful to you. Your fields will be productive. Your armies will advance. Your nation will see peace and I will dwell among you. And then he says, but if you don't, then harm is going to come upon you. And as we know, that first generation rebels against God. And so God sends them into wandering into the wilderness for 40 years. An entire generation dies. And then they're about to enter the promised land. So Moses is giving them the covenant again in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God again is lining out. These are the stipulations of the covenant. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God. If you are careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And if you obey the voice of the Lord, these things will happen. And then he goes on to list through like the next 13 verses. This is how God is going to bless you. If you are obedient to God, man, it's going to go well for you. And then he says in verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and you are not careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. If you refuse to listen to me, there's gonna be consequences. And in verse 47, he says specifically, this is the consequence. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. And so here, Moses, before they're about to enter the promised land, is saying these are the requirements, these are the standards of the covenant. Obey God, it is going to go well for you. Rebel against God, disobey him, be careful. Because Leviticus says it's going to start out here, and then if you continue to disobey, it's going to come down to here. And if you continue to disobey, it's going to get worse and worse. And so here we are as we're continuing on in our series of Jesus in the Old Testament and we're looking through these Old Testament books and we're now in the prophecies and we're going to be looking at Micah today. And we are seeing that Moses told them, follow God and it will go well with you. Disobey God and it's not going to go well. And by the time we get to Micah, they've done a good job of disobeying God. 
And so Micah is coming and he is saying to them, you guys did not live faithfully for God. And so now you are about to experience the curse, specifically that curse in verse 47, that you are going to be exiled. First Israel and then also Judah, you are going to enter into exile as well because you refused to listen to the voice of the Lord. And so if you'll join me, we'll go ahead and open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the prophecy of Micah. So Father God, we just come before you. And God, it's just good to be in your house with your people. We know this building is not your house. This body is your house. And it's great to gather together and worship you. And God, it's great to hear encouragement that your house is not just located here, but overseas with Kashmir in India, and you're doing a work over there. And so God, I just pray that as they are, we also just be faithful to you. That as we open up your word today, we hear the message that you are saying through Micah, and we see that it's a call that you're laying on your people today too, to get right with you. And so, God, I pray, may it fall on hearts that are open to hear your word. And, God, I also just pray that you be with my voice. Give it strength as you are to speak your truth. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. So, again, as we've seen in the other passages, uh, prophecies, the first verse really gives us a lot of information about who and who the author is, who the audience is, and around the timing of it. So Micah chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth, his, where he's from, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So there we have the author being Micah. We have the dating being the, the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, and then we have the audience is Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel, and we have Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah. And so the, the dating of this prophecy, we don't know exactly when, but we assume it's before 722 BC because he's prophesying the fall of Israel, which happened in 722 BC, but the reigns of those kings span from 742 BC all the way to 686 BC, but again, it's believed to be earlier in that time because he's talking about the destruction of Israel. And so again, we kind of have this time like we studied in Amos where it's international peace and economic advancement. And so they're thinking we are good with God and God is coming with a message of actually just because things are going well does not mean things are so good between you and me. And so Micah is actually prophesying about the fall of Israel in 722 BC. And then he also witnesses the attack where it comes all the way to Jerusalem in 701 BC from the Assyrian Empire. And so God is prophesying these things are coming because of their hardness of heart. Because they had that covenant that they said, we make this covenant with you, God. We will be faithful to you. We understand the consequences. And then they started sliding and drifting away from God. And so the audience is, even though it's to both kingdoms, you see that Samaria and Judah, a lot of the emphasis is given to the southern kingdom, Judah. 
the context of it. You can find it if you would read 2 Kings 16 through 20. That's kind of the timing of it all and what's going on there. And you see that, again, it's that time of peace, that they have economic peace, military peace. They're thinking we're good with God, but yet they're distant from God. And so Judah, even, when you look at Israel, you see just nothing but evil being done. And Judah has some good going on, but Israel's sins have even creeped into Judah. And so Judah's not innocent in this either. And so therefore, the theme that you see when you read Micah is a theme of judgment. You see that theme. There's three different messages, and each one talks about the judgment that is coming upon Israel and Judah. But also, God always gives hope of forgiveness in those messages. There's always this glimmer of the remnant, a chosen people. It's kind of like whenever Elijah in Second Kings chapter nine or First Kings chapter nineteen, when he's like, "God, I'm the only one that is worshiping you. Everybody else is gone," and God is like, "Actually, I have saved seven thousand people. There is a remnant of people who are still serving me. There is a remnant in India that is living for God. There is a remnant in China. There is a remnant around the world that is not bowing their knees." to the ways of the world. And there is hope for that remnant, that we are not alone. And that's why it's great to hear from our missionaries overseas, to hear that God is doing a work over there, that God is still faithful and active. And so we see the judgment and forgiveness in the theme of Micah. There are some prophecies here about the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. And first off, we see the prophecy in Micah 2.13 that the Messiah will be the king of Israel. This is what they saw. When Jesus was coming, they were thinking he is going to come and be our king. And actually, they were upset about it because Jesus said, I am the king. And they're like, whoa, we have no king but Caesar. We don't like Jesus as our king. You don't fulfill the Messiah that we thought you should be. And so there's this fulfillment in this prophecy of the Messiah being the king. There's uh, Micah 4, 1 through 7. It talks about that second coming of Christ and the Messiah's reign. And then you have the famous one, Micah 5, 2, where it calls out the birthplace of the Messiah. That, oh, you Bethlehem, though you are small, out of you will come the ruler. And in Micah 5, 4, it talks about the Messiah being the ruler of Israel. And so then the message, we mentioned it talks about three different messages. These can each be marked by the word hear. Micah is saying, listen up, people. You need to hear the message that God has for you because it is one of judgment. You think things are well, things aren't well. So hear what God has to say. The first two chapters is talking about the prediction of that coming judgment. It is heavy on, Micah is saying, listen, all you nations, God is going to bring judgment to the house of Israel. All of you need to hear about the judgment that is coming. And then this, the chapter 3 through chapter 5 is the prediction of a restoration. Judgment is going to come, but God will restore his people through that remnant. And here we see the coming kingdom you see the coming captives, that remnant, that even though they go into exile, they will return. God is not entirely done with his people, Israel. And then you see the coming king as well. And then lastly, Micah 6 through 7 is a plea 
for repentance. God makes two pleas for the people of Israel to repent, to turn back to him, and then he ends it with a message of salvation. He ends it by saying, there is hope for those who turn back to me. And so what you see whenever you read Micah is you see this warning to Israel and Judah. This message of you guys need to get right with God. Things aren't as good as you think. And again, you look at the history of Israel. If you still have that insert that we did a couple weeks ago of the kings of Judah, it's color-coded. And like when you look at the kings of Israel, there's 19 of them. Every single one of them did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. You have 19 kings who are there to lead God's people, and they are doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so if you're Judah, and you're hearing this, and you're seeing, okay, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, I can see why God would wipe them out. I understand that. Like, yeah, when people are blatantly going against God's word, we don't struggle seeing God's wrath coming upon them. It's kind of like when you see a kid that is just running his mouth to other kids, and finally they get popped in the face. And you're kind of like, well, you, you kind of had that coming. You have been running your mouth nonstop. We tried stopping it. We tried warning you about it. You had it coming. And so if you're Judah looking at Israel and you're seeing, all right, destruction's going to come to Israel, fitting, they deserve it. What Judah doesn't realize is they're that kid that is sitting in the classroom after they also were a part of the connivory that was going on during recess. And then you see the principal come in and they get the buddy and they take them away. And Judah's like, skim by on that one. We're good. And then the principal comes back in and they're like, you, I need to talk to you as well. Because Judah thinks Israel's getting what they deserve. We got by with it. But in fact, God is saying, actually, Judah, you are deserving of it as well. I have something to say to you also, because Judah had 20 kings, and we're told that 12 of them were evil, and eight of them were good, but only five of them were truly good. Only five of their 20, so that's like batting 200, only five of their 20 was a truly good king. Everybody else, it says that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except they did not remove the high places. They did not destroy the Asherah, which was like worshiping other gods. It's like, you know what, we'll do what's right with God, but we'll let everybody else worship God in a different way. And so here you have Judah thinking we're good, and God is saying, actually, you're not. Micah warns them in Micah chapter 1, verse 9, where he says to them, her wound, talking about Israel, the destruction that Israel is going to experience from Assyria, he says, it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. And so again, this wound is first off, it's the sin of Israel that has crept into Judah, and it is also the destruction of Israel that God said is going to come all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. And we see this account in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19, where Sennacherib in 701 BC, he takes on Israel, and he comes and he defies Israel, and actually Judah, got to differentiate, he attacks Judah, surrounds Jerusalem completely, and then I think this is just awesome. 
in 2 Kings chapter 19, this is what Sennacherib says. He says, you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharavim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? And so here, Sennacherib is saying, y'all trust in God? What's he going to do? There's been no other God that has been able to stop us. No other king has been able to stand up against us. And you're putting your faith in a God that you can't even see. And here we are surrounding Jerusalem completely. What you going to do about it? And I love the response of God in verse 35. This is what God has to say about it. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech, and Sherazar, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esaradon, his son, reigned in his place. And so Sennacherib's like, what's your God going to do about it? And that night, 185,000 of his people died. And Sennacherib actually wrote something on this. He says, as to Hezekiah, the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to countless small villages in their vicinity. Remember, God prophesied, this is coming to the gates of Jerusalem. He said, I drove out of them 200,000 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle, beyond counting, and I considered them booty. Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem. I surrounded Jerusalem. He could not leave like a bird in a cage. But notice he doesn't say he conquered Jerusalem because the Bible tells us that night it came to the gates of Jerusalem, but God delivered the people of Judah. And so think if you're Judah at this time. Here you see God promising destruction is going to come upon the people of Israel. And then what do you see in 722 BC? You see the people of, did I say Israel is who I meant. In 722 BC, Israel is taken into exile. All right, what God says came to be. Then God says that that same army is going to come all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. So by 701 BC, you see Jerusalem surrounded by Sennacherib, and then miraculously 185,000 people died. Okay, the word of the Lord proves true. And then God is saying, Judah, you need to get right with God. But yet they refuse. So that by 586 BC, Judah goes into exile themselves. So if, if you're like me, I like to point fingers at Israel and not have them point back at me. And so I like to look at Israel and be like, Israel, you're so dumb. God said it. You saw it would happen. Why did you not just take God at his word? But there's a little thing in Micah that we see that kind of tells us why Judah might not have believed God. In Micah chapter 2, verse 6, this is what we're told. Do not preach 
thus they preach, one should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So the message that Micah is proclaiming is that judgment is coming upon Israel and judgment is coming upon Judah. And the message that the false prophets of that time is saying is, don't say such things. God's not disappointed with us. This disaster will not overtake us. We are good with God. In fact, go ahead and keep living the way you're doing. Keep going to the high places. Keep worshiping the Asherahs. Keep sleeping with prostitutes. Keep living in an immoral lifestyle. God is pleased with you. Look at how stable everything is. That is the message that they were saying. And they were saying that one should not preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. I don't have to listen very hard to hear that same message being proclaimed today. The same message being spoken. God loves you just the way you are, which is true, but you don't have to change. God made you that way. God wants you to be happy. God would not try and ask you to give up something that brings you joy. So just go ahead and keep living in your sin. God's not desiring for you to change your life for him. Just go ahead and say Jesus is Lord and live your life the exact way that you want to and everything will be kosher with you and God. Who are we to tell you that what you're doing is sin? That's not our job. And so we're going to be quiet about it. You know, Paul actually has a pretty strong word to say about that in Romans chapter 1. He's saying in Romans chapter 1 verse 21, he says they knew God but yet they refuse to honor him as God. It's kind of like saying, God, I know what your word says. I know that I'm supposed to say that you're Lord, but instead, um, can I just have heaven and not live my life for you? And they didn't give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give full approval to those who practice them. Sound a little familiar? That God's okay with how you're living. It's not that big of a deal. Just keep living that way. And what Paul says is, actually, the reason you're doing this is judgment from God. 
because you're refusing to live for God. You know what is missing from the message of the false prophet, but is evident in Micah's message? It's a message of repentance. It's a message that God is calling. If you want to be his people, if you want to live in his covenant, he is saying you have to repent. You have to turn from your evil and wicked ways. It says that we were dead. We were slaves of our lives, slaves of our minds, slaves of our body. We were following the course of this world, and we repent of that. We turn from that, and we turn to God. It says that I'm trying to live the ways of this world, and I see they lead to nothing but disaster. The more I try and live according to my flesh, it just leads me down a darker path. And so I'm going to stop living that way. I'm going to repent, which means I'm going to turn around. I'm going to turn from the way of this world and turn to God in his way. And I'm going to trust him and I'm going to live for him. That God is calling for his people to have this repentance of heart. This is what every parent wants of their child. Whenever they see their child smack their sibling. And it's like, what were you doing? Well, they deserved it. Well, you have to apologize for that. Well, I'm sorry. Not really, though. It's like you don't, you're not really repenting. I want you to repent, which means it's deeper than a feeling. It's deeper than a regret. It's a heart change. It's a changing of your life that only Jesus can do. And so we surrender over to him. We are told that we die to ourselves so that we can be raised again in Christ. That's what God is calling for his people to do. I heard a sermon a, a while ago on Psalm chapter 32, Justin gave it. And he, was, he opened up by saying, how is the world going to know what repentance looks like if they are not shown it? If it doesn't start in the church, if the church doesn't live a life of repentance, that we are called to show this is what it looks like. When I see that I'm living a life astray from God, I repent of it. I surrender that to Christ and I turn back to him. Like, yes, I've repented of my life in general, but I still, you know, cuss every now and then. Well, I don't want to because God says, let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. So I'm going to surrender my mouth and I'm going to repent of that and pray for God to give me pure speech. God says that I shouldn't be angry with my brother. So I repent of that. Whatever it is that God is putting on your heart that it's like, oh, that doesn't line up with God so much. We don't have a attitude of, eh, that's just how I am. But instead, we have an attitude of God that is against you. That is, that is what put your son on the cross. I don't want to be a slave to it. I want to be a son of yours. And so I'm going to die to that. Help me die to that. Repentance looks like what Paul says in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That we surrender our thoughts and our actions to God and we let him guide us and we follow him as he leads us. It means opening up his word. I don't know how you repent if you don't know what God's word says. It's kind of like whenever your spouse is giving you the cold shoulder and you're like, I know I should be sorry for something, but I really have no idea what I'm sorry for right now. So I'm just going to apologize. And it's like, if I don't really know what I did wrong, 
And so when we read God's word, it shows us this is where you fall short because it says all have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And it says that the wages of that sin is death. And so that's where we're headed. When we read God's word, when we see what Micah is saying is that judgment is coming because God's people are refusing to live according to God's word. We are called to repent, to turn from our evil ways and turn to God. And we are told that when we do, he is right there ready to receive us with open arms, with forgiveness. That he will forgive us when we repent. He says in Romans 5, 8, you've already been forgiven. It's there offered for you. You just have to turn and receive it. He says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, before we could repent, Christ died for us. Christ offered forgiveness for you before you could repent. And so then he says, therefore, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That God is calling for his people to repent. Again, we can sit here and listen to a message like this and be like, yeah, I can think of John Doe out there and Jimmy Bean over there that really need to hear this message. And what God is saying is it begins with the house of the Lord, that God is calling for us to repent and get our hearts right with him. And then we can go to them and be like, let me show you what it is to walk with the Lord. Because Paul tells us what it is to repent. He says, by dying to yourselves, he says in Romans chapter 6, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? This is the message they're saying. Just go ahead and keep living. God died for your sin. Just keep living in it. And Paul's saying, should we keep on doing that? By no means. How can we who died to sin when we said that we died in Christ so that we could be raised to new life? That's what we're saying. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That when you gave your life to Christ, you're dying to your old self. You're being buried with Christ, and then he is raising you a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. That is what God is calling for you to do, to repent of your evil ways. And yes, even in me, a pastor, even in Brother Santosh, a strong believer in Christ, there is still this sin nature in us that we constantly die to. We repent of when it shows its way in our lives. And we live in the newness that Christ is calling us in. That's what Micah is calling Israel and Judah to do. He's saying judgment is coming and you are called to repent, to change your heart, not just your behaviors, because without heart change, the behaviors won't last. But when you give God your heart, he'll change your behavior. He wants your heart. Surrender your heart 
to him. Repent of your ways and he will raise you to newness of life. And then you just keep living for him and showing a broken world. This is what it is like to walk in the grace of God. Knowing I'm not perfect, I still fall short. Who will deliver me from this body of wrath? Thanks be to God who through Christ Jesus has given me the power over death. Father God, we thank you for the work that you did in Christ. God, we thank you that you have offered forgiveness, that you have already paid the price for our sin so that we don't need to. And God, there are so many brothers and sisters here today who have given their lives over to you. But God, I just pray that you continue to do that work in our heart that only your spirit can. That you show us areas where we're saying, yeah, but not that. Yeah, that's just how I am or whatever it is, God, that you are working in us. May we surrender that over to you. Help us repent of that and then just lean on you for the strength to fight it daily, to die to it and be raised new in Christ every single day until you call us home, God. God, I pray that you do the work that only you can do. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray this, amen.